Well, good morning. It's so good to see you guys here and online. And I, I just, what an amazing privilege it is to be able to enter into that exaltation with you guys. We could close in prayer right now, but we're not going to. But we could, because that, that's what it's all about, us rehearsing for that great day, but also being his people in anticipation of that great day. There was a uh, dad I read about is taking a little stroll down the hallway of their home. He had gotten home from work. The house was empty. He walked past his son's room, teenage son, and stopped just past and backed up because he something out of his peripheral vision caught his attention. And he looked back and sure enough, it, the, what caught his attention was that the bed was made. And if you're a parent of a teenage uh, son, you know that's a big deal. And then he stood there for a minute and he took the room in and it wasn't just the bed being made, everything was picked up. There's no dirty clothes, everything was in his, I mean, it was, it was, it was the neatest he had ever seen his room. And then his attention was drawn to the pillows on the bed and right in front of the pillows was an envelope with his name, dad, on it and his son's handwriting. And he kind of got an uneasy feeling in, in his heart and he went over and he opened up the envelope. And sure enough, it was a letter from his son. Dear Dad, it's with a lot of regret and sorrow that I'm writing this to you. I've decided to elope with my new girlfriend because I wanted to avoid a scene with you and Mom. I've been finding real passion and love with Joan, and she's the most amazing woman I've ever met. But I knew you would not approve of her because of all of her piercings and tattoos and tight motorcycle clothes and the fact that she's so much older than I am. But it's not just her love and her passion, Dad. It, she gets me like nobody else ever has. Uh, she says that we're going to be very happy, and I, I agree. We've talked about it. She owns a trailer in the woods and has a stack of firewood, just enough for the whole winter. And we're looking forward to not just getting through the winter, but getting through our entire lives. We, we, we have a dream together that we want to have a lot of kids. Uh, Dad, I don't want you to worry. I, I'm 15 and I know how to take care of myself. <laughs> I'm sure we'll be back to visit someday so you can get to know your grandchildren. And um, I hope this is all okay with you. And I just want you to know I love you, your son, Chad. The dad's eyes went back down to the bottom of the page. There's a P.S. Dad, uh, just wanted to let you know, none of the above is true. I'm over at my friend Braden's house. I just wanted to remind you that there are worse things in life than the report card that's in my desk drawer. I love you. Call when it's safe for me to come home. <laughs> so I'm here to tell you it's not always as bad as it appears. Actually, it is. Very likely, things in your life are as bad as they seem. But here's what I do know because of the gospel. They are not as hopeless as they seem. 
Because of the gospel, we can be realistic about how bad things are looking, but we also can be realistic that even though those things are bad, it's not hopeless because those things can be transformed. It's part of walking with Jesus. We're in this series that we're calling Awaken because it's the heartbeat of a guy named John who walked with Jesus as one of his disciples. And as an old man, John wrote the book of Revelation that we read from earlier, first and second and third John, and this gospel, this evangelion, these glad tidings about Jesus. And his passion was not that your religious life and mine would be enhanced, but that we would be awakened beyond all those things that are bad as a result of living in a rebellious planet and grasp the hope that we have of a new day because of the gospel. He says at the end of his gospel, these things I've written to you, and here's why. That you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, so understand the Son of God, understand He is who He claimed to be. But He says also there's a practical day by day, Monday morning, Thursday afternoon implication that by believing you'll experience life, you'll have life in His name. It's not just heart beating life and lung breathing life, it's the life of God, it's the life that's enabled by God, the restorative life. A redeemed life in which we're able to to do what we were made to do and be returned to the original purpose that we're made for. Now, I brought that up to you over and over, and I'll keep doing it because it's important to understand. This is where John is headed. This is why he's writing what he's writing. But let me read you the previous verse, verse 30. That's verse 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written. So that's how he prefaces that. Now, scholars will talk about the signs of John. A sign is a miraculous event that's only explainable in terms of God. And there are signs that Jesus did. Some will refer to seven signs through John's gospel. There's some variance of opinion of there are a couple of them. They say are combined, adding another one like the, the resurrection. But bottom line, there are these supernatural occurrences in Jesus' life in which he was punctuating the uniqueness of who he is and his ability to deliver on what he's promising. So we started this journey, and we'll be going through it for quite a while. We'll be taking breaks periodically. Next month, April, we'll be taking a break. That'd be, that'd be an example. But we just last week completed chapter one, and it begins with this phenomenal prologue about who Jesus is, and then the, the, the ignition of the, the word of mouth about the uniqueness of who he is and what he came to accomplish. We see John the Baptist proclaiming that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Lamb of God, and and the disciples one by one, telling each other and recruiting more and more people. So that's how the first chapter of John was completed. And now we're going to get to John chapter 2. And I want you to remember what you just read about John saying, there are many more signs that Jesus did, but these have been written that you might believe. So at the end of his book, he talks about these signs. Let's take a look at this first sign. The story we're about to read, John summarizes by saying this was the first of the signs. And remember, he's including this underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as an old man because he wants to make sure that we understand the significance, the credibility of who Jesus is and his ability to deliver on what he promises, and that's life in his name. That's not a positive mental attitude life. It's not self-improvement. It's not self-actualization. It's something that supernaturally occurs in us in terms of transformation to experience in our Mondays and Thursdays 
what we couldn't experience without the gospel. So if you got your Bible, begin reading with me. If you don't own a Bible, pick one up as a gift of ours at the, the, the uh, welcome desk, or you can follow along in the worship guide. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they've no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour is not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, this is not a disrespectful exchange. Jesus was not saying like we would view it today. Woman, don't be bothering me right now. The word woman there is a word that was used often towards another woman. And so, what, what's, what you see happening is, is pretty powerful because uh, Jesus' mother, we don't know why she was involved in the service of the wedding, but she could be it's a family friend and she was doing what a lot of mothers of, 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 who's got a friend who's getting married, she's helping with the, back of the, the, the background preparation. So, she's aware that they're out of wine, which was very, very bad. I mean, the bridegroom, uh, it would be an enormous faux pas to run out of wine. In fact, there are records of lawsuits occurring at wedding feasts in which the, the bridegroom, the groom's family, who are responsible, runs out of wine. So Jesus', Jesus mother comes to him and says, hey, they're out of wine. He says, now, my hour has not yet come. That's significant in that the, when you see the, that Greek word aura appear in John, throughout John, it's always referring to the cross and his glorification. The hour has come. You see uh, that statement in John 13 and, and 14. So what Jesus is telling his mom is saying, I'm here for a lot greater purposes than, than this, and you need to understand that. And his mother shifts from being a mother to being a believer and says, do whatever he tells you. It's going to be something, something's up here. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet, now the master of the banquet was kind of, could be the master of ceremonies, but more probably he was the one that was in charge of all the arrangements. Uh, could be the wine steward, actually. Could be the sommelier there. Could, could be maybe the food and beverage director of the Cana Marriott. Uh, we don't know where they were having the, the wedding, but bottom line, this is the guy that is in charge and knows his stuff. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. I love that. Jesus reveals himself first to the servants. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, dude, that's not in the English, but it's in the Greek. Uh, <laughs> dude, everyone brings out the choice wine first. And then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. There's some people who say, well, this is not wine that, it's not, it's just kind of grape juice. No, it, it, it's wine. And the idea is early on, everybody drinks the, the, the good wine. And then after they've had a little much to drink, they won't notice that the wine's cheap. 
He said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee, and I hear John, was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. Now his public ministry is beginning and he's peeling back that humanity in a, in a way that people could see the glory that's, that, that has been masked in some ways by his ordinary upbringing as a carpenter. And his disciples, they believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And there they stayed for a few days. Love this story. So Jesus chooses as his first sign, his first miracle, to help out a party. Be anything but a failure. And he did this a lot. He hung around people at parties, at these kind of gatherings, to the point that he was accused of being a wine-bibber, a drunkard. And, and, and a glutton by the religious crowd. They looked at him judgmentally. But Jesus is the kind of person that would be involved in these. And so, so many times we, you know, we understand that, that wine can be controversial in, in church circles. And obviously the scriptures teach temperance and not being drunk with wine in Ephesians. But there's also hundreds of references to wine in scripture as part of their culture. It was part of their culture on a number of levels. Early on in civilization, wine was reserved just for the elite. But by this time in the journey of civilization, wine was for everyone. In fact, uh, it, was, it was the safer beverage to, to drink at times. The water sometimes get con- contaminated and the, the alcohol in wine would, would uh, keep the, the germs to a minimum. And it was part of celebrations. It's part of Jesus' life and journey and teaching. He showed great familiarity with wine, talking about new wine doesn't belong in old wineskins. And aged wine is better than new wine. Oh, that's in Luke 5. He talks about the laborers in your vineyard. He talks about abiding in me as, 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 a bran- as the vine and the branches uh, are connected in the vineyard. He uh, brings up the whole notion of wine for the culmination of his ministry right before his crucifixion in saying this wine is a symbol of my blood. He also says at the end of Matthew, end of Mark, at the end of Luke, at that time he says, I will not drink of the fruit of this, this fruit of the vine again until that day when we have the great supper in my father's house, in my father's kingdom. And so what's happening here is far more than Jesus helping out a party. We've entitled the life of the party with a dual sense. May a life of the party, yes, maybe in the typical sense, but this is that life of the gospel. He's bringing something here. He's using this party to launch something. And the notion that it's turning water into wine would be not be lost on any, anyone there. I mean, Amos and Hosea and Jeremiah speak of the messianic age. When the Messiah comes, the wine once again will flow freely. Everything is culminating to a great banquet at the end of time, at the culmination of the new heaven and the new earth, this wedding supper of the Lamb in which the new wine will be tasted. So what Jesus is doing in this moment... He's talking about, uh, I've got an agenda, and it's time. 
It's an agenda of taking this and making it this. It's an agenda of transformation. Our vision here is engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. And that engagement will involve a process over the course of time in our journeys. You want, to, you want to know what's going on in our lives as we are becoming fully alive? Fully alive, as we've talked about, is a status in which we come to Christ and we are fully saved, and then we start experiencing the life of the gospel to His glory more and more and more. It's a transformation from this to this. And then it filters into our individual areas. You've got some pockets in your life, some, some areas that need transformation. Could be in, in a relationship with a son or a daughter. Could be a marriage. Could be a work at work. Could be financial. Could be some temptation stuff. Could be health things. And you're thinking, I need transformation. I need change. And this miracle that Jesus did was not happenstance. John said this is the first of the signs because this is something that Jesus is wanting to communicate that He was all about transforming that which is to that which can be. And if we're going to engage one another to be fully alive in Jesus, we've got to understand what that engagement looks like. What does it look like to engage with this transformation of becoming fully alive? Let me give you three ingredients we find in this text. We'll go back through it. First ingredient is embracing His overall purpose. So you, you want transformation in your job or in that stress point from a temptation or marriage. So often we say, well, I want to come to church, get a little fix and maybe help me uh, get transformed. And we think it's just all about us. Remember, it's not about self-improvement. It's not about self-actualization. It's about a far more global cosmic purpose. Go back to the text just for a minute. Verse 1 and 2, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and His disciples had all been invited to the wedding. Now, you see that, and you think on the third day, you just fly by it. It's, don't fly by it. You think John just was putting that down as a happenstance, an afterthought? No, everything he's doing is very intentional. So third day, what does he mean by that? Well, it, one of two things. It's either the third day after the events that you and I know of, the events that ended up in chapter one, when those culminated, and that was four days worth of events, then this was the third day after that. Four plus three is seven. And so John's conveying, okay, there, 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 there's a, 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 a new creation. What this, the seventh day is, hey, after God had established his new creation, he says it's good. So could be that, or it could be the third day of the Jewish week, starting with the Sabbath, which would mean it's, it's Tuesday. And, which, by the way, is the day that uh, historically, traditionally, Jewish weddings often would occur on a Tuesday because the, it would be the third day. And the third day is known as the day of double blessing because in creation, the third day was the only day in which God said it's good twice. 
There's also that allusion to the resurrection as well, but that's coming later in the story. Bottom line, there's something going on here that John's wanting to convey and take us back to creation. He's already started his gospel within the beginning, and now he talks about the beginning of chapter 2 on the third day. He's alluding back to, to creation, and it's important to understand that what he's doing is taking what was and is about to transform it. He's taking water, which was, is he created water? He's the creator of all things, absolutely. So he's taking that which was and he's transforming it into something far more powerful and beautiful. He's taken ceremonial pots that were used for the Jewish rituals. And he's saying, we're about to turn this, we're about to transform this into something else. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 17. Ultimately, he's saying, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a new religion has arrived. No, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Guys, it's not about religious rituals. Paul writes to the Galatians in chapter 6, verse 15, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. In other words, religious ritual. That's not what means anything. What counts is the new creation. Jesus is taking that which is under a curse. Still, it's part of what was made. It's part of His creation, but He says, I want to redeem it. Now, is anybody on this planet not in the image of God? No. Every human being is created in His image. We're all there. The power of the gospel is a restoration of that imageness, a transformation of us being men and women that are underneath that suffocating influence and bondage of sin, releasing us into what we were originally intended for. So in Genesis 1, we're created in His image. What's His agenda in our lives? Romans chapter 8, verse 29, for those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. What's God's purpose? For you, and for you, and for you, and for you to be conformed to the image of His Son. That He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness, to His image, same Greek word, with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What the agenda is for me to experience and engage with this transformation is not just saying, Jesus, why don't you come along and help me out with my finances, help me out with my marriage, help me out with my work. It's Jesus, come along and not just do a little self-improvement, but transform me from someone who was dead into someone who is alive. He's transforming me from water to wine, transforming us. His purpose in your life is not just about you and Him in a privatized way and Him coming along and helping improve you. His purpose is getting you to be more like Jesus, which means He's restoring you to your full imageness. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you're still in His image. You're still created by Him, still the original thing, but He 
He's saying, I've come to restore what I've made. You are being transformed if you're in Christ, Paul is writing, with ever-increasing glory. Get that. The tragedy of our sin is that we are under this curse of abandoning the glory of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all of us have sinned, and as a result of that sin, we're falling short of the glory of God. But the beauty is all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The tragedy of my sin is I'm living out my imageness, but I'm not tasting the glory of God. Jesus' purpose is one of restoring all creation. You hear me talk about a lot, you'll keep hearing me because the scriptures shout it. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14, one day the earth once again will have a beautiful transformation completed. It's when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And how that glory advance through you and through you and through you and me and us who were this being transformed into this and being restored with ever-increasing glory until that final day when we gather around the wedding supper of the Lamb and the transformation is complete. He's not here to make your religious people religious. He's here to transform dead people into living people who can walk together in community, absolutely, and walk together in a way that's only explainable in terms of Him. And so if I'm going to experience that gospel, it's a matter of saying, I realize I'm this. I want to be this. Jesus, would you help me? And all of you, I've got all of us, I've got some water stuff going on in my life. Even this morning early, I was grappling. And saying, Jesus, can you really? take this water and turn it into wine. We're dealing with that as us as a church as well. And don't ever, ever sell short what Jesus can do. Appearances aren't everything. Do you guys know the name Paul Potts? Paul Potts, you guys know the the show Britain's Got Talent? Four of you know about Britain's Got Talent, the rest of you, America's Got Talent, you know, it's kind of the American Idol type show. The inaugural season of Britain's Got Talent, and I saw a reference to Paul Potts this past month, and I remembered about what happened that first season when he performed. He was a car phone salesman. Was he really what he appeared in terms of his capability? You know, you watch those shows. You ever get embarrassed? You know, you see somebody sing and you get nervous because you think, this guy's going to embarrass me. He's going to embarrass all of us. I'm sitting here in my living room. I'm going to be embarrassed because he's wanting to do something that he can't do. And we're thinking often, hey, I I, want to be this, but I I can't. Appearances aren't always everything. Take a look. (laughs) Absolutely. By the way, he ended up winning... uh, the competition that first season. He came back at the end. His car phone salesman then ended up singing before the queen, became a professional opera singer. Do you hear what he said at the beginning though? It was his tension. He said, I feel like I was born to sing on one hand. The flip side though, he says, I lack confidence. We get that. We all think this is, I think I was made for this. But I don't know how to get here in this aspect of my life 
this is where I am. And Hebrews talks about a great cloud of witnesses cheering us on and understanding. Embrace Christ's purpose. What you are yearning for is what you are meant for. There's that compass internally in us as His images that we are to live for more than ourselves, but for His glory. But we can't do it on our own. But would we trust Him to see and embrace His purpose? Isaiah chapter 43 verse 19 says, Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. This is for you and for you and for me. And it's for us as Northland. That whole aspect of taking wastelands and making streams. Anybody here got some wastelands that they'd like to see made a stream? How about ashes and making beauty? Anybody want to see their ashes transformed into beauty? Taking crooked paths, seeing them transformed into something straight. Broken people transformed into whole people. Water into wine. That's the gospel. That's the hope of the gospel. That's what, that's what Jesus was doing. It was far more than him saying, hey, let, let me help you guys out from an embarrassment standpoint. He was using that moment to say, I've come to take this and turn it into this. Understand my purpose. Embrace it. But if I'm going to Engage with this transformation, it'll also involve, once I understand that and embrace His purpose, I will need to trust His power. Because it's one thing for Him to say, this is not what you're meant for, this is. It's another for it to happen, and He says, trust me, I can deliver on my promise. He's using this as an illustration, John chapter 2, verse 3. So he read verse 1 and 2, now let's read verse 3. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. We've already talked about that. Nearby stood six stone stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim, and then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. What was going on there, this was far more than adding some food coloring to some water, turning it purple. What goes in, and the master of the ceremony, it's significant that John points that out, he, he was not to be fooled. He could tell what had happened. He didn't know where it had come from, and he's thinking, this is the best wine that they, they, could, possibly, they could be serving here. How did, how's wine made? It's, it's not an overnight process. It's something that, that takes time. You've got a vineyard that needs to be cultivated, and then a ton of grapes that are carefully picked, placed into a vat. They're either crushed, pressed, and the yeast, the little micro, single-cell uh, organisms that are in the air and on the skin of those seeds, they come in and start eating up, gobbling up those sugars. The result is alcohol. Byproduct is carbon dioxide. And the polyphenolic compounds that are in the skin and the seeds and the stems begin to be transformed into something that's beautiful, something that is living and is stored. What, what that whole process is, it takes a long time. And Jesus said, pour the water and see it happen. Only explainable in terms of Him. That's why Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 says, I pray for you, you who are yearning for transformation. I pray that the eyes of your heart 
would be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you and the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints and His holy people and His incomparably great power for us who believe. What is that thing that you're yearning for transformation in? Don't short sell it. Don't think of it as something that is just about you and Jesus coming along to help you in your little world. Understand, He's summoning you into a cosmic agenda and, and your work and your relationships and your finances play into that. But no matter how discouraged you might be, there's no way this can become this. Paul says, oh, may the eyes of your heart be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. What kind of power? That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. So the same power and the resurrection is available to you and me to, to enable this to happen in our journeys as we're becoming fully alive. He, keep going. And seated him in his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So the uniqueness of this gathering is not just us coming and playing church for a little bit, it's us gathering as, as men and women of water who are being transformed into wine by the power of Jesus. Jesus to His glory. When all is said and done, the transformation of the gospel is not something where I can look and say, hey, didn't I do a wonderful thing? Aren't I doing great? It's, can you see what's happening in my life? And it's only explainable in terms of Jesus. Which then leads us to the third ingredient of the engaging with His transformation, and that's celebrating His progress. It's not only embracing His purpose, understanding it's far bigger than my little corner here. It's trusting in His power, taking that step of obedience and saying, He called me in this direction, and I'm going to trust. It might be three steps forward, two steps back, but we're making progress. And over the course of time, until that great feast at the end of time, it's happening. But along the way, we're to celebrate His progress. Look at verse 9. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone who brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you've saved the best till now. And what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. But I want you to look at this last phrase. And his disciples, they believed in him. There's some high fives going along with those disciples, celebrating. This is going to be, this is going to be significant, what we're about to experience. And it's what Jesus did. I mean, he just didn't dole it out. You know, in Ephesians 1 talks about him lavishing grace, the, the Greek word is perisuo. In John 10, 10, he says, I've come that you might have life and, and, and have it to the full. Perisuo, it means extravagant, abundant, lavish. Take a look at verse 6 again. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. All right, let's do the math on this. We've got six jars, each holding between 20 and 30 gallons. So let's take the middle. 
25 gallons. So six jars times 25 gallons equals 150 gallons. 150 of these. 150 gallons of wine would be the equivalent of about 757 bottles of wine as we know bottles of wine. They didn't have bottles like this, but to give you and me a little understanding of how much wine Jesus made. And if it's a pretty good expensive wine, very nice wine, let's say it's a $40 bottle of wine times 757, that's $30,000 worth of wine that Jesus did. He is not about doing the bare minimum in your journey or mine. He's about abundantly and extravagantly lavishing His power in such a way that enables us, let's celebrate His progress, which is why Paul prays in Ephesians 3.20, now to Him who is able to do the minimal, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. There's something that's happening here in which Jesus accomplished a miracle that was extravagant and lavish. And it was a foretaste of something that the prophets proclaimed about the great feast at the inauguration of the new heaven and the new earth. The passage we read earlier in Revelation 19, verse 6, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. This is what it will be like on that great day for let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And then the angel said to me, write this. This is John. He's given this vision to blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God, that wedding supper of the Lamb. So when Jesus says at the end of each of the Gospels, he says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until that great day. He says, there will be a day. You think the wedding at Cain of Galilee was something? I am about to inaugurate the new heaven and the new earth. The best is yet to come. So celebrate His progress every day along the way, knowing that He will get us home. It might be four steps forward, three steps back, and then two steps, one, but we're getting there, and we're getting there by His power. There was a woman I read about, she had terminal cancer, had a couple of months to live, met with her pastor about the final arrangements and the funeral and the song she wanted sung. She made a bizarre request of him at the very end of their, their, their meeting. He came to her hospital room and she said, I'd like to be buried with a fork in my hand. And he looked at her and she said, I know that sounds weird, but I've been reading through Revelation. I've been reading about that great wedding supper of the Lamb. And When I was a kid, I'd go to church potlucks, and my favorite part of a potluck is when they'd clean all the plates away, but then they would say, keep your fork. Why would they say that? Because dessert's coming. The best is coming. And she said, I remember loving it when people would tell me to keep my fork because it got me all excited that the best is yet to come. Guys, the best is yet to come. 
celebrate his progress until then. But no, he's going to get you home. He's going to transform you and me. And on that great day, every step along this fermentation progress in which he's pressed us into new wine is going to come to fruition.